Hi, this is Emma John, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. So my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Emma John. Emma's a writer and editor for Guardian and Observer, um, former deputy edit- editor of Observer Sport Monthly and the Wisdom Cricketer, and in 2008 was the first woman ever to win a sports journalism award. Um, she's also a producer on the wonderful podcast, The Breakdown. But the reason Emma's here today to chat to us is about her wonderful book, Wayfaring Stranger, A Musical Journey in the American South, which I read and I absolutely loved, and I think you all will too. But what makes me particularly fascinated by this book is that it's written by a Brit immersing herself in the world of bluegrass, which for obvious reasons, if you can hear my accent, resonates with me quite a lot. Um, so Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess the obvious question is, is why bluegrass? How did it, how did this come about? Um, but the, with a sort of second part of, was it intended as a book from the start or did it turn into a book as you went? Uh, that's a very good question. It's a little bit of both um, because what happened was I had not played my violin since I was in my early 20s I'd, I'd actually trained classically and I'd gone to Guildhall School of Music and Drama and done Saturday school uh, and was taught by a very uh, a very committed passionate um, Serbian uh, violin teacher who who thought he had to turn me into a professional musician because that's what people do at, at, at this particular music college um, obviously unfortunately that's not really what I wanted to be so that was a bit of a that was a bit of a tug uh in two directions uh and um i i enjoyed playing the violin very much um when i was young uh but um but when i didn't go into it professionally um i actually stopped enjoying playing it at all really because i i just i, I sort of had been sort of almost overtrained trained for nothing really um and and so i put it aside and didn't play it for a good 10 years um which considering you know how much that instrument had been part of my life when i was a teenager is was extraordinary really um you know it's kind of like you know having a having your best school friend um and then just you know one day sort of walking out of their life and uh and then not really picking up the phone to them for a very long time and uh and so i hadn't really done anything um and of course the longer it goes on uh the the, the more guilty i feel about the fact that I haven't i haven't communicated with my violin in a very long time and so the less i'm the less i'm actually inclined to do it uh, and then in my early 30s, uh, a couple of friends um, who were quite musical uh, had one of them had started playing banjo. And so he'd started picking a bit with um, a guitar playing friend of ours. And they had said, oh, we know you play violin. Would you kind of like lay some fiddle over over these country songs we're, we're playing? And to be honest, I had no background in country music. I mean, I genuinely I I couldn't. I, I would have struggled to name you more than one Johnny Cash song. I mean, it was, it's that, it was that bad. I didn't even know the obvious. Um, so, but, but when I, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's that thing where, you know, I'd learned, uh, I'd been taught, I'd been drilled, in fact, to sort of have quite a good ear, um, at music college. And, and so, you know, f- country fiddle lines, a lot of them, especially on the big kind of mainstream songs, they're not, they're not super hard. And, um, so I picked them up quite quickly and, Funnily enough, you know, found this quite enjoyable getting getting back on the horse and, and playing playing a bit of simple fiddle and and everybody thinking it sounded great. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, well, oh, fantastic. And because my friend Ben was a banjo player, he he liked to bandy this word bluegrass around. And I'll be honest, it was about the same time that Mumford and Sons were coming out. Um, with their first album and I liked them and because they had a banjo people talked about them as bluegrass as well and so I completely not really appreciating or understanding what bluegrass was I decided I would quite like to play bluegrass fiddle Um, and I had this sabbatical from my, uh, from my day job at The Guardian, uh, because, uh, the news, this is a very lefty newspaper, The Guardian, and they have this great thing where every four years you work there, they'll give you a month's paid sabbatical. And so, you know, I thought, well, what can I do with this month? What could I, you know, 
some people like to go and learn a language. Some people repaint their house. Some people just spend time with their kids. Um, I thought, well, you know, I've got back into the fiddle. Um, I could, I could treat it like learning a language. I could go and kind of do a sort of immersive month in, in the place where they play bluegrass and I could try and learn there. And, um, so I, I flew to North Carolina, uh, knowing absolutely nothing about the place. And as it turned out on my, I, I arrived, you know, I arrived and went to a jam my very first night and realized, yes, I, I don't actually know what bluegrass is because the thing that they were, <laughs> the thing that we were playing sounded nothing like Mumford and Sons. <laughs> and I, you know, and, and it all sounded, yeah, quite Irish and, um, it was all jig or it sounded to me, you know, to my uneducated ear, like kind of very, very difficult Irish sort of fiddle. And I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this at all. Um, but funnily enough, uh, I was only there a week and within a week, having never wanted to write a, a book about anything before. I mean, I genuinely uh, had sort of resisted people telling me, oh, it's about time in your journalism career that you that you wrote a book. Um, I, I I said, I, no, I'm not writing a book for no reason. It would have to be something I really wanted to write about. And within a week of, of being in North Carolina, I was so fascinated by not just the music, but really the culture around it, I think. Uh, and the kind of the extraordinary mm. things that you very quickly learn about it. And for me, uh, one of those things, for example, was the difference between bluegrass and old time. I mean, I just thought this is great. You know, not only are these two different musics that really come from the same place, but they but but they also have these completely opposite cultures. You know, one's the lefty version, one's the righty version. You know, one's very, very sort of uh, deep um, trad, uh, you know, and one one is very influenced by the folk revival of the 70s and this is just wonderful you know somebody should write about this oh I know I'm a writer I should write about this and uh and so within a week I, I knew that I wanted to write a book and then it, and then actually it took me another few years to get that book deal because um as you have mentioned being a Brit uh is not common um you know for bluegrass fans and so it was quite hard to persuade a publisher uh that uh, you could write a good book um, about this obscure uh, American music that um, that British people weren't particularly into. <laughs> so, so I I was playing for you know for a good few years before uh, I finally got the book deal and and finally got to go and spend my well what turned into about a year um, of, of over there playing fiddle. And, and it's funny you say that because you, you know the having to convince people to let you write there's the last sort of 15, 20 years, the book market in the UK has been awash with Brits going to stay somewhere else in the world, learn the culture, absorb the culture, you know. And if that happens to be Provence or somewhere in Italy or somewhere in the Spanish mountains, then that, that's that's just such a, there's so many books like that around. And the idea that it was harder to be able to write that kind of book about somewhere non-European just because there's a, a sort of bluegrass music element about it. It's sort of hilarious because there's shelves and shelves of those kinds of books out there. I know. Well, that was the funny thing. I mean, that was the only thing that sort of put me off my own writing when I was doing the book was I was thinking, oh, this, you know, does the world need this book? You know, really, I knew very much that I kind of, you know, the book for me was was an excuse. It was a conduit to go and um, uh, to go and take a year off work and 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 play music and and travel and meet amazing new people and make lifelong friends and and the book was kind of my my ticket to do that and so there was there was a weird sort of guilt feeling as you know when it came to it that was like does, does the world need another you know journalist goes somewhere and learns about a culture other than her own and you know uh, ends up enjoying it uh, but you know in in the end I in the end I was quite pleased with it so I think I think it's all right I think I got away with it well I think what um what makes the difference like with any great travel book is that it's always about two journeys going on at the same time. And one is a physical journey somewhere to be somewhere else and do something else. But the other one is very much an inner journey. And the, the sort of the story of the book is your inner journey from going from being a, a musician who plays music in like a very high level, but has a whole other world of music to understand. Um, and there are revelations and epiphanies along the way. And it's that inner journey that stops it from just being, a Brit abroad, isn't it? It's that's the that's the real narrative in many ways. 
Yeah. And I think that really, you know, that the, the fact that all that happened to me sort of surprised me, um, if I'm honest. I, I knew it would be hard. I, w- I wasn't under any illusions that it would be hard to go and, and learn bluegrass fiddle because it's a it's a very difficult style to master. Um, you know, well, I, and most of my teachers would say, well, you never master it. You, in fact, Matt Glazer, who was my who was my main teacher, said you you don't ever master it. You you master it each day. You know, that's the only way that you can kind of you can you can feel any sense of achievement because every day you have to come back and 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 learn it all over again, essentially. Um, so I knew I knew that technically it would be difficult, um, but I think what was really hard was because the two styles of 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 playing from classical to uh, to to anything folky really are so different. One is perfectionism. One is really underscored by perfectionism, which was the very much the training and teaching I had had. Uh, you're given a set of notes. You're given a set of instructions. Mm. And you have to deliver that as absolutely perfectly on cue uh, as as you can. Um, and musically as well. Obviously, musicality is a huge part of that. But it's you start with you start with you've got to get the notes right. And, you know, you've got to be in tune. Um, whereas fiddle bluegrass was so different. I mean, there was, you know, I, I even though I had read and understood the history of the the fiddle as a rhythm instrument essentially as a as a as a dance instrument um there to you know keep a beat and 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 keep people dancing i didn't really appreciate that that's something that comes from within the fiddler and and that 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 sense of beat and groove is you know, you have to have that. And I absolutely did not. I mean, I, you know, I, all, all, everything I'd learned about violin and, and, and beat came from, uh, following somebody waving a stick and, uh, keeping to that and, you know, being a follower, being a very, very dedicated follower. Whereas this is like, you know, the, to get the bluegrass groove, you've got to have it in you. You've got to, you've got to create it. You've got to kind of like, um, you know, own it. And, and I did not have that. Uh, at all uh again as Matt Glazer would be the first to say uh and and then of course the second element is improvisation you know you, mm. you go from one one style of play that you know means you just have to memorize uh memorize music to one way you have to be making it up and, and in bluegrass you've got to be making it up and improvising at extraordinary speeds and um and I think one of the you know one of the biggest revelations that I have in the book um is is that actually even learning it's very difficult for people to teach you in a short way if you don't have that background it's very difficult for t- people to teach you what improvisation actually is because what i was essentially doing was kind of um trying to make something new every single time i picked up the fiddle but not really understanding that bluegrass is um is a musical language and you need to know the basic words and phrases uh, in order to put them together and in order to um, to be able to improvise at speed, because you're not being entirely original every time you're being original in the way that you put this in the way that you speak the language. You, you're saying a sentence maybe that's never been said before, but you're not inventing words. <laughs> the words are there. Hmm. The phrases and the idioms are there um, already. And that's what you're um, that's what you need to be able to kind of string together. And that was, you know, that was the hardest I, I, it, it still frustrates me that I only realised that about two thirds of the way through my uh, through my year of playing bluegrass. I'm like, oh my goodness! It was it was something the Kruger brothers said to me. They're such kind people, and we sat down and had a long chat. And um, they were, yeah, I can't remember if it was um, Jens or or Uwe who said it, but um, one of them said it, and it was just like if somebody had said that to me right at the start. <laughs> I could have achieved a lot more by now. I'd have got a lot further. But there wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been as good a book in it. <laughs> <laughs> These are sort of life lessons, really, aren't they? That that idea of um, like so many of the things you said there, like the idea of understanding beat as a sort of intellectual concept you can follow, and having it in you as a thing that you can carry and move around with and and play with and. And the idea about perfectionism versus expressing something, but like there's so many parallels 
there for life that I mean, we, you have to learn your lessons again every day you know it's that that's what i love about this kind of music because there isn't a score you can't go back to the correct version of cherokee shuffle or whiskey before breakfast or like everybody plays them slightly differently and so that's massively liberating eventually but at first it's like well what but uh, but what, how does it go like where's the what's the actual tune and you just have to sort of work it out in the end yeah <laughs> Or you just, or you just, you know, you make Kenny Baker your god, which is what I did. Uh, it seems to have worked for a lot of other people. So yeah, I, I just, I, I was just like, I, I'm just going to be a Kenny Baker style bluegrasser. That's that's. I'm just, I'm not going to try and, you know, I don't have enough time here to try and like, you know, invent my own style. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do whatever he does, <laughs> play his and, notes. And this is the thing is that you sort of realise that that you can. It's exactly as you're saying, you can learn things and sort of string them together to get you through until you can work out bits that you want to add to that and bits that you want to change and bits that express who you are. But it is so much a language where you, you sort of think, how, how do people think that fast? How do people think that many notes at a time? And, you know, they're not. They're thinking phrases and, and licks and ideas and something new will come out all the time. But this yeah. sense that... This is that, it. I that, think there's a real... There's a mythology that makes it hard to learn. It's it's very interesting. You know, I, I sort of assumed a little bit that Bluegrass would be quite a closed community and it would be hard to break in and, and it would be, they would be very suspicious of an outsider and a Brit. And in fact, the opposite was true. Um, you know, Bluegrasses uh, are very, very keen, I think, um, to share what they know because it's a very, you know, because it's a, it's a small subgenre and they're very excited. Anybody, anytime anybody shows an interest, you know, they want to tell you. It's, it's the same thing for me with cricket. I, I loved cricket since I was a teenager. And if any of my friends who are all completely bored by the idea of cricket show even the slightest, you know, interest, in in one element of it i will you know jump jump in there with both feet in order to hoping that this will be the time that i explain something to them and and they suddenly say oh what a brilliant game it is yes absolutely um but despite the fact that i think bluegrasses are very very good at teaching and very keen uh always to pass on the traditions um i also do think that there is so much mythology around the music that it makes it very hard to get to the truth i think it's a mu- i think it's a music that is based on so much falsehood and so much bravado it 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 it, it loves it loves its own um it loves its own sense of self and it it, it I, you know i i don't want to gender it she says just about because she's just about to massively gender it but i do think it you know it it's a, it's a very ma- it came out of a very very macho um place and time uh a, a group of and you know it's it's father was a man who was uh incredibly um uh, you know uh, a, a sort of incredibly big uh and uh, quite uh dominant character um who who very much kind of wanted to present himself to the world as this, um, yeah, this kind of like all knowing, uh, um, uh, father of bluegrass as, as I, I don't know whether Bill Monroe called himself that, but I know that he enjoyed it. Let's face it. You know, he never said, no, 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 no. It's not just about me. We must talk about everyone else as well. No, he loved it. He, he loved his own mythology. And I think, that is baked into the culture or at least the heritage, if not the contemporary culture of bluegrass. I think bluegrass has changed a lot and contem- you know, where it's going in the future is much more inclusive and accessible um, to all sorts of people. But, um, uh, you know, it's a show off music and it, it is designed um, to impress you. And that, that really can kind of keep you, that can keep you away. That can, that can make you feel like, uh, yeah, I'll never, I'll never be able to do this, um, and I, yeah, and I think that that improvisation um, goes into that because everyone loves the idea and the mystique that they're just coming up with this stuff uh, that they are that they you know they you know that they are inventing every note uh, again and um, you know aren't they aren't they brilliant and so I don't think people necessarily kind of are really uh, very honest about how the mechanics of it work sometimes <laughs> because they'd rather it all just looks like a gift from god 
And that's it. That's one of the things, the themes that's really emerged from doing this podcast is just that idea that that I had certainly at the beginning of it. This, this, this race of superhuman people who live on bluegrass Mount Olympus, wandering around with a drink in their hand, having arrived at the final destination, going, "Isn't this glorious? Aren't we super?" And they're not. They're just people who've been doing it longer than we have, and you know, worked hard and and applied the talent they had, but work incessantly to get there. And and it's been really lovely hearing people talk about that on the podcast saying like i you know we're all on the same path i've just i'm much further down it than you are but it's the same journey we're all on because there definitely can be an element of and it can happen with all sorts of art forms but this there can be an element of bluegrass that's a bit about it's a bit like gymnastics it's a bit like fastest you know fastest finger first kind of that and it, it doesn't always convey a melody when you're doing that it's, it'd be about the book equivalent would be like send the best novels are the longest ones with the most words in them, which is obviously nonsense. Um, but when you, you sort of dig in and talk to people, there are definitely so many people who are like, I, I signed up for guitar lessons with Brian Sutton on the artist works platform. And I thought he was going to teach me loads of cool stuff to play. And what he actually told me to do first and foremost was make a nice noise and play something people can tap their feet to, like, you know, having a groove and, having something to say is more important than how fast you can do it. And that will come in time. The rest of it, you can work on that, but like fast flashy licks aren't what I'm going to teach you first. And that was sort of a revelation. And it was really sort of um, eye opening for me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah. So my first, um, the first thing that I did uh, on this particular, on the, on the, when, when I went to write the book, um, the first thing I did was I went on one of Pete Wernick's camps um he, he holds one just be, just ahead of Merlefest each year and um by this stage you know I'd, I'd been visiting North Carolina you know every every year for a few years so I had some good friends around and I had a, a good friend um not far from Wilkesboro who who I still you know still good friends with um and um I go and stay with her and I was going in from there to Pete's camp and he that is very you know he is very much of that uh of that ilk that's just like he's he wants people to feel you know it, it he he really i would say he he almost wants to like set aside musical ability because he just wants everyone to be able to sit in a jam and have a good time that's what he feels that bluegrass you know really is and and, and is good for i suppose it's a very i i like it because it's <laughs> uh it's, it's it's sort of naughty to say these words um on something that americans might be listening to because they'll probably have a, a a fit but um it's almost quite a socialist principle um to the uh to, to bluegrass that i really really appreciate and and that sh- of course should be there i mean folk music every kind of folk music is the whole point is uh it's about community and solidarity and democracy and sitting around together and um and and everyone being welcome and the american campfire is a place for that and uh and something that you know is 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 at the heart of the music and that does mean that that yeah ability you know or lack of it shouldn't ever shouldn't ever stop you shouldn't ever put people off um and i loved that about pete's approach it was just it was you know all I, you know, all I want to start with is, yeah, if, if we can get you to a place where you can play the tune recognisably, then you're contributing. Then you're contributing to a jam, you know. Mm. Yeah, and and I think actually bluegrass is a form of music compared to pop or rock or classical where you, you, you've got the performers and you've got the audience. And bluegrass and a lot of folk musics that that distinction is much more blurred isn't it and a lot of the audience are also performers or also play in their spare time and they understand that that sort of crossover between and maybe that's partly because they're just smaller less commercial musics as well but there's definitely that shared sense of we're all part of this same thing that you don't necessarily get which is really interesting because that's not necessarily what it was meant to be i mean that's i find that really interesting i'm not sure who uh, you know whose history I would go to on this? Um, I mean, probably Neil Rosenberg because he, you know, he he is the to me he's a definitive historian of bluegrass. But my impression from researching the history, which I did quite a lot while I was writing my book, was that really the people, you know, if if you're looking at Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, the 
the intention was never to create a, you know, the, the intention was not to create a kind of music that everyone played. No, like his, you know, bluegrass was about, uh, and his whole style and his whole stage presence was about, uh, um, it was, it was about impressing people with what he could do. And, um, and if anything, you know, there was a kind of frustration and, uh, you know, what, what grew to be an annoyance if people took his brand of music and, and started, um, messing around with it and mm. doing their own thing with it. And so I think, I think historically, really it's interesting you know that 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 campfire side of it it was almost unavoidable because of because it had already come out of a folk tradition anyway so it was always going to be it was it was always going to be unlikely that it was going to completely divorce itself um from that but it could have done um rockabilly for example which is not that different a kind of music is not a is not a jamming music Mm. Um, rock and roll is not a jamming music so it's it's not that fu- you know it, 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 it i i think that again you'd need to talk to the real bluegrass historians about this fred um uh um who wrote who's just written that book about industrial um bluegrass he would know um but but i think that circumstance uh sort of contributed to bluegrass as a picking music i think the the fact that um who was it who set up the original camp um, with Munro? Um, his name begins with C, and I've totally forgotten it. And um, he's really important. Um, uh, oh, my friend Trevor will be so um, disappointed in me that, that his name has not just come to. But anyway, th- there was there was a famous bluegrass festival at Roanoke, um, uh, which was really kind of the start of 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 the of the bluegrass festival, and that. I think you know was was where where the picking tradition came from more than more than anyone just kind of hearing Bill Munro's music you know Mm. a a culture grew up around it um and so I think that yeah I think it is really interesting you know I think it, it it has grown its own tradition which I find fascinating and I think is probably you know half of the problem of, of the kind of, uh, you know, divisions and conflicts you get in bluegrass um, today is that uh, people have different ideas of what that tradition is. And it's such a, if you think about it, it's such a relatively young tradition. It's not even a hundred years old hmm. um, that uh, people are still, people are still creating it and claiming it for their own really. Well, I sort of, I've been sort of, mulling over since I read the book, like what possible connection there could be between cricket and bluegrass. And, um, and just as you talk, it sort of occurs to me that there's, there's some real parallels, like both of them obviously really reward geekery and nerding out and knowing all the facts and all the history. And, and, you know, both of like cricket is often watched by people who also play it in their spare time. But I think maybe more than that, there's a constant, um, tension between tradition and progress in bluegrass and like cricket there's test cricket which the purists will see as the you know the version of cricket that should always be played and nothing else should ever be played and there's the t20s and the hundreds and that's what's bringing the money in and bringing the people in and bringing the eyeballs and getting the kids into it and all the old fogies are going but that's not proper cricket and in the same way that people are going billy strings isn't proper, proper bluegrass it's not flat and scrugs or so it's maybe there's yeah. like there's a universal thing that we do with things we love where we just get a bit baffled when people don't quite love them in the same way we do, rather than going, isn't it great? We all love this thing. We get a bit defensive. Yeah. And, and it is, it, you know, and tradition in itself is kind of, it's sort of a weird bonkers thing because, because the whole point about bluegrass is that when it started, you know, Bill Monroe was doing something completely new, avant-garde, you know, even a little bit kind of, you know, offensive, like sonically offensive. It was, you know, people. Not everyone loved bluegrass when it started. I mean, not everybody loves bluegrass now. Let's face it. But, but when it started, you know, it was too much for some people. It was, you know, this is. Oh, this is. You know, no, this is. Who are these young men tearing up? You know, these instruments, and um, and then and then every generation 
and not we're not even talking generations as in sons to fathers daughters to mothers we're talking you know just what just waves we're talking from Bill Munro to Flat and Scruggs who were in his own band you know um every every new incarnation to Jim and Jesse they they all did something different with it it was mutating and evolving from like day one practically uh the Osborne brothers you know it uh, putting putting electric into it <laughs> doing a Dylan you know all this stuff it's like that was happening in the 60s I mean we're not we're not talking like we're not talking like you know it's funny that people it's funny and I think a lot of young really serious hotshot musicians hotshot bluegrasses today find it funny and ironic that uh, there should still be um, a sort of preservative protectionist uh, approach to, to to bluegrass bluegrass could only be this thing because the whole history of bluegrass from from the mid 20th century onward has has pushed its boundaries it's it's a it's an experimental music it always has been and it's going to continue to be like that it's it's mm. you know that's why i don't have a problem with i don't have a problem with bands like billy strings being called bluegrass if if that's what he wants to call it i mean you know he's he's clearly like one of the best bluegrass pickers in the world the fact that what then comes out of his band doesn't sound like uh you know it doesn't doesn't sound like traditional bluegrass doesn't doesn't matter yeah. to me at all no and i saw them in a tiny venue in london a while ago and they finished the set around one mic and it sounded like bluegrass to me oh you know they can do that they don't choose to do that all the time but it's it's there if they want it um and it's, i spoke to the mandolin player tristan scroggins a while ago for the podcast and he like you know sort of pointed out that the whole point of bluegrass becoming what it was was that bill monroe was progressive and did something new and Earl Scruggs was progressive and did something new and this was you know that what we now think of as this tradition which probably only lasted for about two years was born out of people doing things nobody had ever done on those instruments before yeah and I think it's it's funny isn't it because like we sort of talked about bluegrass as being like a language and I think it is I think it's I think like a language it will evolve you know I speak English and the Elizabethans spoke English. We would have struggled to understand each other because of uh, the work, the different, our different vocabularies and, and um, our different accents. But we still speak the same language. I can sit down and read Shakespeare and, you know, pretty much understand what you say with a little bit of help from a cliff notes or whatever. Um, so, I, you know, it's just, it's we're really bad as humans i it doesn't matter what it is we are really bad at uh at letting things um evolve and change we 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 struggle with it i think it's cuz we both live so so short and so long we think we live long but 70 years is actually you know nothing and um it's certainly not enough time um to really kind of get a handle on uh, how the world is going to change. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's sort of running the risk of going a bit deep on this. But like one of the things that struck me about the book is, yes, it's a book about you going to North Carolina to live and, and play bluegrass. But it's also, it's really like the journey of learning to improvise and your journey. It's really a story about learning to be vulnerable. And that whole thing around tradition versus progression is like to have confidence in what the thing you love is or who you are or whatever. And you get your value from what you think is important, not what everybody else says is important. So there's a whole, there's one of the things I thought was really beautiful about the book because it was essentially just learning to be open to things and get things wrong. That's what learning to improvise is. And that's what life is. And it's one of the hardest things to do is to sort of just be, able to be vulnerable and get things wrong in a public space and if you're going to learn to jam you're going to have to do that week in week out yeah that's really true I think that is really true um yeah and I think a lot you know it's it's interesting because a, a lot of that is stuff that I don't think I would have ever got to a place where I could understand any of that or experience not even understand but just experience any of that when I was younger I think some of it has just some of it is stuff you can only get because you live a bit longer 
and you have to let there's you know life feels like a process of letting go you know you start off you start off so strong Mm. (laughs) you start off so uh so sure and so determined and so um desperate you know that you all this stuff is going to happen in your life you've got all this time and you know this is what's gonna this is what's gonna happen in your life and then life actually happens and you're like oh yeah I didn't have as much control over that as I thought (laughs) yeah well um, so much of what we do is designed to like help us pretend we have control over things that we can't possibly control um, and I find it really interesting, sort of, you know, obviously I'm I'm British as well. And part of what drew me to the book was was that sort of clash of cultures a little bit. Um, there's a line in the book that says, I'm British. When faced with a shared public space, it is the inclination of my people to keep our heads down and pretend that no one else exists. And um, like it reminds me. So I, I was invited a few years ago to speak at a conference on social isolation. And while I was waiting to speak, I stood there looking at my phone, pretending to be on Facebook so I didn't have to talk to anybody else in the room. And it's like we are so I, – and I wondered whether whether something like bluegrass could could have been an English music if we're the right kind of society for it. Because you talk really beautifully in the book about about how common intergenerational friendships are in, a, in the places you visited in America, for example, which is not necessarily a common thing in Britain. And, um, I, yeah, and I sort of wondered if, if – a nation like ours could have produced bluegrass. I sort of feel like maybe not. No, I, I, yeah, I do think that, you know, I mean, talking about a personal journey, the best, the best thing that happened to me, uh, you know, from, from just going there to learn bluegrass was that I discovered a, I discovered a totally different society and way of living and one that really suited me. And I wouldn't have known that suited me because I've, you know, grown up in Britain and, and yeah, I'm very used to being very reserved and um, uh, especially as a Londoner, you know, it's even worse in a big city. Um, And actually being the American version of myself, if such a thing can be said, you know, or the, or the, or the Southern version or whatever it was, it, I just loved it. I, I got so much out of the openness and the hospita- hospitality culture and, um, yeah, the kind of come-as-you-are um, stuff. Every, everything about that was so new um, and very, very appealing to me. And I felt so deeply happy, like happy in a kind of – in a sort of – content with where I was and where I was at and and having been a city girl uh oh man contentment would would not ever have come in you know my top five list of emotions at any stage in the previous sort of decade of my life um you know exhilaration and you know sense of achievement yes blah blah but just contentment and to be who I to be you know just to be not even to be who I am, just to be. Uh, that was something I only really learned from being in the South and where things move a bit slower. Um, people don't care how you dress and uh, the doors are open. And, um, oh, it was just, yeah, that was really, that was that was a really special experience. And I have to say, talking about social isolation, uh, one that I have felt I have missed hugely since um, since the start of lockdown because... I was in the lucky position having made these friends and doing a job where I can often work from a different country. I, I was in, I was in the fortunate position where I could go and be in North Carolina, you know, at least once a year generally and, and, and find this other mode of, of living, this other mode of being and being cut off from it for three years has been, uh, that it's, it's been hard because I know that exists. I know that I know there's a version of me out there in parallel in parallel multiverse world mm. um that that is uh that is much more relaxed and much more open and um uh and can yeah can hang <laughs> that was that was I think that was a big word that I learned from the in the south I mean there were so many but one of them the, the concept of a hang, you know, was just that that does not exist as far as I know, not in my life <laughs> in the UK. There's nothing is quite nothing is that unscheduled. Nothing is that uh, that easygoing here. Mm-hmm. 
And I was also one that leads on to something I was going to ask you about, actually, is just moving to a place where you, like, you ended up not being a tourist. You ended up, you know, being to some extent a local and meeting people that mean a lot to you. And how easy is it then to write a book where you talk about those people, knowing they're going to read it and knowing that you need to be able to say stuff that's going to entertain us as readers. And sometimes that's going to have to require you to be a little bit judgmental. Um, I I don't (laughs) know how you balance that. It was, oh no, that is hard. I mean, that is hard. Uh, Luckily, you know, my best friends over there, um, uh, people I write about in the book, like Trevor um, and Andrew and Carrie, I mean, luckily, like, you know, I was so besotted with them, um, you know, uh, that, you know, my 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 heart was so full of love for, for these people that that I, I, I could, you know, that, that nothing that I wrote about them would have uh, would have come out ba- badly because, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, for, for a long while, I, I just had them up on a massive pedestal, really. Um, but yes, yes, the 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 the, the danger of being the observer and um and you know having been invited into something um but then yes essentially at the end being like but I'm still going to write this book where where I'm the where I'm the outsider and I'm the observer um that was it was it was tricky and I really you know I really did have to think about it and I did have to um I think I think kindness was you know the, the main watchword. I don't think I always got it right, but I, 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 I think that because I had had such a good experience and I had felt so enthusiastic and optimistic that even the things that I struggled with, um, it be it the Trumpian politics or um, uh, the right, very, very, you know, hellfire versions of Christianity that I came across, that uh, that I wrote about those things, and I and I documented what that you know what I felt or what I what I observed and what I felt um and but I tried to do it in a way that would still honor the people who who were into those scenes whichever though you know politically or uh or religiously um and tried to give their I tried to give their to give their words you know I try you know and and not to judge their words just to give their words as they were and um it's very it is very interesting because since I wrote that book um when I you know I was I was there for for the you know that was the first year of Trump's presidency and so a lot of the people that you know as I say I was really good friends with sort of horrified by what was happening in their national politics really horrified deeply embarrassed that that someone like President Trump could be there could could be their, their their state person um uh and um and so i got a lot of apology you know a, a lot i i encountered a lot of bluegrasses who who thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread but i also got a lot of apologies um on trump's behalf and uh and i found that fascinating you know living in a um living in a place that felt like it was wrestling so hard with who it was what was going on there and then unfortunately um in the year since um which had already been presaged by by the brexit vote but it has landed a lot harder since then um the same thing has now happened in britain and and i shouldn't have been surprised at all because it was already happening in europe and there were plenty of uh there were plenty of european countries that that were experiencing their own struggles with populism but the fact that i'm now the i'm now the person who's in the situation where she feels that as soon as she goes abroad, as I did recently, I just spent a month traveling around the European continent, actually in nine different countries. And, um, I found, yeah, I found myself apologizing for, for what, what's happening, uh, in Britain all the time. And, uh, so I think in some ways it was a good experience to have been through, to have, to have witnessed it, I suppose, in a way there, uh, it's helped me a little bit more, to try not to get sucked into the culture wars that exist in Britain and, and which are very easy to get sucked into um, both as, you know, both as a kind of lefty liberal um, uh, uh, Londoner, but also as a journalist. I mean, journalism is just absolutely, 
uh it's feeding on all this stuff we it's you know our our, our news networks and uh, even our newspapers are running on outrage um at the moment from either side of the divide and while i am always tempted to be on the you know on the left side of that outrage and and to, to and i know that there's a danger of, of stoking it <laughs> and i also know from my time with bluegrass playing trump supporters who i've sat down with and picked with and had a really great time with and have seen have seen them with their families have seen them with um the community have seen them just being really good human beings who happen to have um you know have have taken up political stances i find baffling and abhorrent um i i feel like it's it's taught me to really moderate my own response to what's happening um across the culture divide in britain now because my instinct is that you know i don't agree with anybody i mean i don't agree with people on the other side of of the argument but that doesn't mean i should that doesn't mean that they're not deep down going to be really decent fundamentally decent human beings because um that's what i found in the bluegrass community very 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 few people in life are not fundamentally decent human beings i think and I think there's something really beautiful in that because I, I read the book again just before talking to you today. I'd read it, it was a while since I'd read it, so I wanted to read it again and so some of it was fresh. And just like you think about how polarised we are and how polarised we get and how easy it is to surround yourself with people who think the same things as you do. And you sort of almost start from, are you one of us or one of them, before you get to know somebody. And yeah. the idea of turning up in a regular bluegrass jam or going to a festival and sitting down with a bunch of strangers and the first question you ask is what instrument do you play and what tune should we start with and and so and like there's people i've been playing music with regularly for years i've got no idea how most of them vote um they're all like in my experience good kind honest caring interesting people i like playing music with i don't know what their politics is because we haven't talked about it and being on facebook groups full of bluegrass guitarists and chatting to people who you know, like listen to this podcast and it sort of doesn't matter and politics does matter. But at the same time, it's really important to be reminded that mostly we're the same as each other, even if yeah. in some little bits that matter to us a lot, we're not. And that's yeah. a, just that idea of people sitting in a circle playing music, looking at each other like we're all the same is a really important thing at the moment, I think. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and, and, most you know there are there are some jam circles you sit in that that are just like wacky and that are you know that that become uh you know that become strangely competitive and rivalrous <laughs> just you know just weird um you know peacock peacocking exhibitionism mm. but mostly you know most jams the the atmosphere will will be encouraging most people are there to like you know they want they want the music to keep going they want this tune to hold up <laughs> and 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 in order to keep a tune going you kind of all have to buy into it and you know yeah there's that yeah there's that like uh there's that guitarist who sorry i don't know why i picked on guitarist just mm -hmm. because you're one but you know uh who can't who can't nail a solo or um you know who slows down you know who can't who can't keep up with the bass or whatever it is yes and you know uh but that's part of the that's part of the deal that is mm. just part of the deal you know this is community this is what this is what you know i mean i think the better you know the better versions that i see of religion this is what religion is sort of uh teaches that you know the the the, the best versions of that is that everyone's um that we are here to look after everyone that we are we are an agent of, of of welfare and that means everyone um needs to be equally looked after and and valued and given their human dignity and um you know i think that that's where the joy is really the joy is in coming together with people there's no joy in there's no joy in 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 the opposite of that we know not we know that like it doesn't matter i i've it isn't, i've never seen it make anybody happy you know conflict 
And that is sort of, um, you know, I'm not talking about conflicts, but that idea of people getting together and that's where the value is. There's a, there's a point in the book where you sort of fairly early on where you rock up and you're hoping just to stand around and watch and learn from people by not having to chuck yourself into it. And the chucking yourself into it was the thing, yeah. as it always is. However many excuses we can give ourselves while standing around on the edge is, is good for whatever reason. That Just the getting on in and doing it, being with people, doing a thing together. That's like in every instance what it's about, really. Yeah. Yeah. And so often it's fear that stops us, isn't it? So often it's like fear of embarrassment or, um, you know, fear of social rejection or whatever it is. Um, and I've got to say, <laughs> uh, oh, gosh, no, it's really going to be really hard to say this without sounding like an arrogant idiot. Um I there's no way around this. I've started this this sentence now, but I I it was the thing I learned about myself um from this whole experience was that um that that I'm sort of there are certain regards in which I I am much more fearless than I ever knew and um and travel was what taught me that really sort of just a you know oh, I, I actually I I don't mind getting on getting on a plane and going somewhere and knowing no one because that's sort of the point. I will meet people and they will become my friends. And um, and it was only really ever getting home and talking to my friends back here. And they would say, you're so brave, Emma, so brave. And I'd be like, I'm not brave because bravery is overcoming, um, bravery is overcoming fear. And I didn't have to <laughs> because <laughs> there was no fear involved. Um, so that was that was another nice thing that I that has really changed my genuinely changed my life I mean I've written I've written three books now uh one was about cricket um and my obsession with cricket as a teenager and um the other one I wrote during lockdown that was a kind of more memoir sort of thing um but the bluegrass book is the one that has really genuinely like actually changed my life is it's it's it taught me stuff about myself that I could have gone another 10 to 20 years. I could have, who knows, I could have maybe got to the end of my life and never known all that stuff about myself. Um, I certainly wouldn't have walked out on a, um, on a, you know, stable, well-paid, you know, job at a national newspaper for, for anything else. Um, if, if, if it hadn't been for this and I wouldn't be, you know, living the completely different life that I'm living now. So, um, yeah, so thanks, wayfaring stranger. Look what you did to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's I think that's glorious because you know that idea that it might have started off with Mumford and Sons that isn't really bluegrass at all. But we've all got our starting points with this. Some people come in through our oh, brother, where art thou? Some people will come in through Billy Strings, or you know, you, like however you get in, we're all in. And and that's that's a, that's just a lovely thing, you know, to find a place that you didn't realise you belonged that you do. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's lovely, and I'm sort of aware that we're we're kind of running out of time, so that's maybe a lovely positive note to end on. But um, it's very happy. It's a very happy thought. I I approve this message. <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you for for hours more. There's this, you know, it's it's been a joy. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, just it's lovely. I haven't got to ch chat to anybody about bluegrass for for a little while. Well, yeah. Since 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 the since the last time that I discovered who actually you know the other people in the cricket bluegrass uh, Venn diagram, which turns out to be Johnny Flynn. <laughs> so there are there are Rob, Robert McFarlane, the nature writer. He's um, he's also in the cricket bluegrass um, crossover. So it's it's always nice to find people who occupy that tiny space. <laughs> well, try and drag a few more in. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that one. That was really fun to do. Um, I loved Emma's book, and I hope you will too. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes where you can go and find the book and Emma's website and various other bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, have a great week. Back next time. Happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.